Did you find that hard to understand? That's because I was talking through a mask, which is now mandatory here in Victoria. Hello? Good afternoon. See, I took off my mask. I've taken off my mask and no one knows because I'm I'm safe in my office here and the doors are locked. Hello and welcome to The Way It Is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast, episode number 18. 18, an age maybe Prince Andrew should have waited around for before starting to take on those girls, but that's that's a whole nother thing. We're at episode 18, and this is the 24th of July, 2020, here in beautiful Bayside, Brighton, Melbourne, Victoria. And it's um, it's 12 degrees. And it's 12 degrees, like, for the next month, which is like about 55 degrees Fahrenheit, wherever you are, that uses Fahrenheit. And the only difference is for the next month, it'll be 12 degrees either with rain or without rain. But it gets down gets down pretty cold at night. It's winter. We had one of the coldest weeks ever. We had some days that were like three and four degrees. It was really cold. And now it's really cold. You put on your mask and your glasses fog up when you have big, thick glasses like mine and a big Jewish nose and the mask never fits. So... Um, I'll be walking around complying, walking around complying with my mask on, not being able to see anything and um, either falling and grabbing old ladies with canes to break my fall or just walking in front of a tram or, or, or whatever. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Hopefully, in a few weeks, the state of Victoria, which you've probably read about all around the world, which is the... Um, the Wuhan of the Southern Hemisphere now will uh, we'll get back a bit to normal. Get back a bit to normal. So this is a mask-free podcast now. Mask-free podcast. And uh, a lot has happened this, this past week. It was the anniversary of, of the moon landing. In fact, today in history, today in history is the anniversary of the return of the Apollo 11 spacecraft. And I, I think we should just kind of touch on, I'm going to open the show with a little bit of, with a bit of history and some of the things that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about why cats uh, can vote in the next U.S. election. We're going to talk about MasterChef. We're going to talk about an amazing new, see, there you go. I got the word amazing in, in like the first three minutes here. An amazing $200 million new film from Netflix. That's the start of a whole new franchise. What's going on in Hong Kong that has totally been forgotten by the mainstream media and many other important light and amusing and cautionary stories as we, as we, as we always have. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very, 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 very much. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the feedback I'm seeing on social media. Uh, the only way this podcast can grow is you. You lighting one candle to make two, two to make four, four to make eight. Until the whole world is lit with candles, people listening to my podcast, and then the whole world burns down.
but other people are accomplishing that for us. So that's no problem. But keep listening. Really appreciate it. Now, on this day in history, some of you may have been born back in 1534. You'd remember Jacques Cartier landed in Canada and claimed it for France. Now, I've got a few Canadian listeners, so I'm going to be nice. It's the new nice. But there's a couple really nice parts of Canada. Okay, that's enough there. Uh, <laughs> you're all just waiting. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Carol. Hey, Marie France, up there in the great white north. Over here in Australia, it's kind of interesting. Um, Australians are a funny bunch. So when they meet someone that they can't tell if they're Canadian or American, and the nuances of the accent do vary, of course, all from all around the U.S. and from the east to the west, and of course the uh, the French Quebec area of Canada. But most polite Australians, and Australians are a polite group of people. It is a lovely, lovely country. In fact, I've been here 26 years next month. If you haven't visited Australia, you can't, because <laughs> we're closed. And if you did visit Australia, you couldn't visit Victoria because we're doubly closed. So put it on your vacation plans for 2095. But um, Australians, when they're not sure if you're American or Canadian, they always say, are you from Canada? And they ask that instead of saying, are you from America? Because they always come back with the retort that, well, if you ask a Canadian if they're from America, they get offended. But if you ask an American if they're from Canada, they never seem to get offended. Well, that would probably be true from experience. And if someone says, are you from Canada? I usually respond with something witty like, no, I have shoes and teeth. Why would you ask? But uh, Canadians do have a, they got a big chip on their shoulder about the U.S. They're, they're proud of something up in Canada. They don't know what it is. They've been trying to find out for a couple hundred years. They're proud of something. They just have no idea. Very much like our Kiwi friends down here on this side of the world, New Zealanders, which are called Kiwis because of the Kiwi bird. The Kiwi bird is flightless, incidentally. Great, uh, great irony for New Zealand's economy. But uh, they've got a real chip on their shoulder about Australia. And thousands and thousands and thousands of them had come over here in the past decade to get work permits and work and not pay taxes and bludge off the country and then go back to New Zealand. But that's changing. And uh, isn't that Gary? I don't know. We've got a Gary Wall. Gary, did you pay taxes? I'll check. I'll check on Facebook. Got some Kiwi friends here. They're lovely people too. But again, <laughs> they have to be. Russell Crowe is actually a Kiwi. The Australians call him R. Russell. Uh, very, very possessive there. It's like Nicole Kidman, R. Nicole. You know, Pat Rafter, R. Pat. Um, any time we have a success here in sport or music or theater or anything like that, it's our. Because we do punch above our weight down here. Australians, especially in sport, punch so far above their weight as far as medals in the Olympics and things like that. I won't mention the Commonwealth Games because they don't count. 
because um, it's just the Commonwealth countries. So it's kind of like minor league baseball in the U.S. If you're a star in minor league baseball, oh, yeah, oh, great. Have to use Wikipedia to look that one up. But uh, we do punch above our weight. Amazing swimmers, tennis players. I grew up adoring Ken Rosewall, um, you know, John Newcomb, the nuke with that cool, cool mustache, things like that. Just the, absolutely the best. Amazing. But uh, the Kiwis, uh, they gave us Russell Crowe. I like Russell Crowe. One of my 10 favorite actors, maybe of all time. Amazing. And in fact, I know it's not really current, but if you didn't catch him in The Loudest Voice, which was the Showtime miniseries about um, his portrayal of Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox, Fox News, absolutely, you know it, amazing and epic because it really showed what an absolute genius Ailes was but also what a complete, grotesque, diabolical, horrible human being he was to other women. But what a wonderful family man he was to his son. It was a very complex character. And uh, you know, not, not somebody that's all bad or all good or something like that. And I read recently that Russell Crowe, when he was at a party, I think it was, um, I think it was Hugh Jackman's birthday or something in, in New York, and uh, Jared Kushner was there, uh, President Trump's son-in-law. And he spoke with hours to Jared about, because he knew Roger Ailes very well, just getting little intricacies about Ailes and things about him and his family and his nuances and stuff like that. And uh, people say, well, how'd you corner him for so, for so long? He said, well, nobody else would talk, would talk to Kushner. So he cornered him. I find that quite interesting. So moving on back to our, our, our history, our, our history, because we had talked about Canada being found in 1534. I wonder if anybody's asking all the sports teams in Canada to change their names. Who knows? In 1673, not that long later, Edmund Haley, he entered the Queen's College, Oxford, as an undergraduate. Now, you would know Haley from Haley's Comet. Now, I found Haley's Comet to be a pretty big dud. It was one of the things that I looked for as a child. I absolutely was so looking forward to the return of Haley's Comet back in 1986. It had last been to the Earth at its perihelion, where it's closest to the Earth, in 1911. And I used to have a book called Richard Halliburton's Book of Marvels. It was a big old book that was on my parents' bookshelf. It was published in 1937, and it was a favorite of my dad's, and it had all these travels through the Occident and the Orient from author Richard Halliburton and all the amazing things that he experienced in his, his list of things that he wanted to accomplish before he died. It was a bucket list, you know, 50 years before there was the term the bucket list. And... I knew as a child that in 1986, Haley's Comet was coming. It was like, it was on my bucket list. Anyway, big fizzle, big dud, hard to see, clouds forever. Um, didn't have some of the technical astronomical things happening that were supposed to make it really, really bright like it did in 1911, where it just absolutely seared 
across the sky and lit up the sky and freaked people out. So I was quite disappointed by that. And um, I guess that was almost like my first fake news experience. Well, it will be coming back. It will be coming back in 2061. So the term twice in a lifetime ain't going to happen to me because I ain't going to be here in 2061. Right now, at present, because a lot of you are saying, where the fuck is Haley's Comet? I hear that all the time. You can be on, a, on the train, on the tram, you're at the, air, at the airport. Um, of course, there's no one at the airport right now, so that's just a figure of speech. But, you know, walking around the empty airport, we come up to somebody and they'll always say, do you, know where, do you know where Haley's Comet is? Well, right now, it's right outside the orbit of Neptune, not far from its aphelion point. So I thought you might like to know that because I'm sure you're going to get asked that later this week. So now we've covered that. And Edmund Haley really didn't do a lot much else, but that's what he's known for. I'd love to have a comet named after me. Bobby's fucking comet. How amazing would that be? BFC, Bobby's fucking comet. People, whoa, what was that? You know, you're driving, you're out in the middle of the night, something just <laughs> lights up the sky. Well, that was Bobby's fucking comet. Oh, okay. Maybe, after I'm dead. In 1793, France passed its first copyright law. Now, that's very important because as a writer, I know that France is has laws that are some of the most difficult and absolutely Byzantine to adapt and exert anything from novels and publications. Ever. If you have a French book that you want to make a film of or a, a theatrical presentation or anything, hire about 604 lawyers and get ready to spend money. It is just something that's known throughout the industry. A little bit of trivia there, a little bit of minutia for you. In 1824, still before most of us were born, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, a newspaper published the results of the first public opinion poll, the first polls, with a clear lead for Andrew Jackson. Wow. Well, speaking to our polls right now, in the U.S., President Trump is 11 points behind Joe Biden, but he was 19 points behind Hillary Clinton on Election Eve 2016. So you know what you can do with those polls. In 1847, Brigham Young and his Mormon followers arrived at Salt Lake City, Utah. Salt Lake City is a beautiful place, great skiing. Salt Lake City is the headquarters of the Mormon Tabernacle Church. Mormons are pretty, pretty easygoing people. However, they have given us people such as Mitt Romney. I rest my case. In 1851, window tax was abolished in Britain. You think you pay high taxes? Well, this tax was first imposed in England in 1696. I actually found out about it with my lovely wife when we were traveling through Bath in England and saw that the most beautiful homes had the most windows and a tour guide on a bus there. I hate bus tours, I got to tell you, but this was one of those open, nice buses open-air English, you know, double-decker buses, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and it was absolutely gorgeous. 
and the driver knew everything. But normally I hate tour buses. I hate being with crowds of tourists and things like that. And in fact, one of my nine worst experiences since I've been born, since, since I've been born, was being, God, I hate admitting this. this. This is worse than, some people say, what was the hardest thing you ever had to do? Oh, coming out. Oh, okay. And how was your career after that? Well, you didn't have one, as um, many people would know. But, um, but no, I'm not coming out. What I'm doing is coming out and saying that I rode on one of the Tours of the Stars buses in Hollywood because I love my wife and she wanted to ride on one of those. And they, I lived in LA for 20 years. I know those are all a bit deceptive for tourists. And they allegedly take you to neighborhoods where, you know, all the stars lived or used to live and stuff like that. Oh man. But you look at those, those buses and you go, that, that is a Bogan bus. And if you don't know what a Bogan bus is, it's kind of the white trash tourist bus. It was one of the most terrific experiences ever. I just kept having to duck every time I thought I'd see somebody I knew in L.A., which is a bit ridiculous because, you know, six million people in L.A., the odds of me seeing someone I knew were infinitesimal. But then I thought I'd be photographed. But the odds of anybody even wanting to photograph me, let, it, let alone even caring that I was even on the bus because no one would care, uh, even in my own family, was infinitesimal. But the climax of the whole story was when the bus driver was trying to drop us back at our hotel, as they would. We were staying at the Beverly Wilshire, or the Pretty Woman Hotel. Did we want that bus pulling up with us on it? Not on your life. Thank you. Just drop us here. We'll walk an hour. Getting back to buses and window taxes. That tax was first imposed in England in 1696. It was intended to be a progressive tax in that houses with a smaller number of windows, generally 10, were subject to a two-shilling house tax, but they were exempt from the window tax. Houses with more than 10 windows were liable for additional taxes, which increased in line with the number of windows. So hence, the poorest, who are more likely to live in houses with fewer windows, were therefore, in theory, taxed less. That makes sense. The principle generally worked when applied to the rural poor, but failed to alleviate the tax burden on the urban poor because, in towns and cities, it was unusual for the working classes to live in individual homes. Voila! They would usually live in large tenement buildings, which, however they'd been subdivided, were considered to be one dwelling house under the terms of the tax and therefore subject to heavy window assessments. So, as any smart landlord would do, they had slumlords back then, the landlord, as the property owner who was subject to the tax, windows in tenement buildings were then boarded up and new buildings were constructed without sufficient window accommodation. They figured that one out pretty quick. So, then let's move into the 20th century. In 1911, American explorer Hiram Bigham discovered Machu Picchu in the lost city of the Incas. I visited that. I visited that in 1972 when I went to Peru and Chile with the University of Colorado skiing in the northern summer, the southern hemispherical winter. 
which was quite a great experience. 1936. Some of you might be old enough. 1936. Did you grow up in Minden, Nebraska? Because on this day, it was 118 degrees, an all-time record. That's 48 degrees centigrade. On, on this same day, in Alton, Kansas, another town of nothingness, 121 degrees, which is 49 degrees centigrade. So what do we know about the summer of 1936? Fucking hot. Woo! Imagine trying to wear a mask on that day. 1965, now we're in my era. Hey, Boomer, thanks. Bob Dylan released Like a Rolling Stone. I did not know the politics of Bob Dylan. I did not know what a lyricist he was. I didn't know anything. I just love that song. And I went down to Williams Appliances in Sioux City, Iowa that day on Pierce Street. And I bought an amazing, yes, it was amazing, RCA Portable record player. The record player actually folded up into the case and the two speakers, the stereo on the side folded up. So it looked like a large briefcase. And I brought that home and plugged that in. And I bought like a Rolling Stone right there also at Williams, which sold records. Oh, and I just played that till the grooves went white. Now, whoa, is that something I can still say? I played a vinyl black record until the grooves went white. Whoa. I'm sure I'm going to get called out for cultural appropriation and racism there. What was wrong with the record? Why did you have to make it white? <sighs> Apollo 11, Return to Earth, 1969. This was the week of the moon landing, 1969. Greatest achievement in our history. Greatest achievement in our history. At least... Nobody can go up and take the moon away and take the footprints off the moon. Same people that are taking down the statues and everything else. We, we have reached peak stupid. This is the stupidest time in history. Sorry to say. Apollo 11. Amazing. And to kind of wrap it up, in 1974, the movie Death Wish, based on the novel by Brian Garfield, directed by Michael Winner and starring... Superstar action mentor, Charles Bronson, was released in the U.S. Now, everybody my age saw this. In fact, I saw it at the Orpheum Theater in 1974 when I came back for a break from University of Colorado. And it was amazing. I had never seen anything like that. If you haven't seen it, it's a 74 American vigilante action drama loosely based on the 1972 eponymous novel by Brian Garfield. The film was directed by Michael Winner, starred Charles Bronson as Paul Kersey, who was an architect who became a vigilante after his wife was murdered and his daughter sexually assaulted during a home invasion. Now, that was the first film in the Death Wish franchise and was followed eight years later with Death Wish 2 and other similar films. But most importantly, at the time of its release, the film was massively criticized for its apparent support of vigilantism and advocating unlimited violence and punishment of criminals. Allegedly, the novel denounced vigilantism, whereas the film embraced the notion. And that's because the film was a commercial success and resonated with the public in the U.S., which was experiencing increasing record crime rates during the 1970s in major cities such as Chicago, Detroit, in New York, 
Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? And that's why I would love this film to be mandatorily re-released again because I'm ready for vigilantism because it's, you know, people defunding the police, you know, and then they got a problem. Call the police. Oh, wait, oh, no, wait, we defunded them. Oh, I guess we can't call a cop. Um, what do we do? Call, um, call a social worker? Yes. Defund the police and then complain that you're not safe. Try and think through the moronic logic of that one. Vigilantism is about to begin again. And if things don't settle down a bit, you're going to see citizens in the U.S. bearing arms and taking things into their own hands to protect themselves, such as the couple in St. Louis who had about a thousand marchers on their private property threatening to burn their home, kill them, kill their dog, and are now being prosecuted for waving guns at the marchers. We'll see how that one pans out. I find that rather grotesque. Anyway, grotesque that they're being prosecuted for protecting their own home. Anyway, did we see how we just went from the year 1534 to the present? Well, we have. One last thing, not quite the present. 1975, Giorgio Armani and Sergio Galeotti founded Giorgio Armani in Milan. Now, there's something I'd like to say about that. And I think some of you know what's coming. Questo è enorme perché Giorgio Armani è stato uno dei primi. Se non i primi designer e utilizzare i film per promuovere i suoi articoli come American Gigolo e Miami Vice. That was huge because Giorgio Armani was one of the first, if not the first designers to use movies to promote his wares, such as American Gigolo featuring the amazing Richard Gere, and Miami Vice. Armani was one of the first. As you can see, my Italian is coming along with Duolingo, and I have a 174-day streak of doing my minimum with my Italian learning online. We don't want to break that streak. No, we do not. Now, big news in Hollywood. Big news, just moving right into entertainment. Ryan Gosling is preparing to battle Chris Evans in a new Netflix thriller from the writers and directors of Avengers Endgame. This is a U.S. $200 million spy thriller that Netflix is putting together. This was originally reported by Brett Lang for Variety, but the film is entitled The Gray Man, and it's based on a series of bestsellers from author Mark Greeny. Now, this is a veritable cinematic hunk-off that seems guaranteed to set movie fans' hearts aflutter. 200 million bucks, Netflix. Uh, that's, you know, the Irishman territory. Joe and Anthony Russo, they're the brothers who helmed several of the critically and commercially successful Marvel films with Evans, including 2014's Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which I liked a lot, and 2019's Avengers Endgame, which I absolutely love, absolutely love. They'll direct. And the script's being produced by their new content company, HBO. Now, Joe Bruce wrote the script with the Endgame screenwriters, <clears throat> Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, 
<clears throat> Excuse me. I think I better have a sip of Chambord here. It's time. It's that part of the day. Hang on. Tasty. Hmm. Oh, tink that glass. I love Chambord. And if you actually pour a glass of Chambord, which is a stunning French raspberry liqueur, and then you take a spoon. You, you would have seen this on my Instagram if you visit my Instagram. You take a spoon and you turn the spoon upside down so the, the bevel is up. And then you slowly pour thickened cream, heavy cream onto it till there's about a half an inch. If you have the spoon on upside down, it'll kind of blend over the top and form a beautiful layer. If you don't, if you just pour it straight in, it'll make it all milky and it'll defeat the purpose. But if you've got that layer, what happens is then when you sip it and drink it, the beautiful heavy cream hits your mouth first, then followed by the Chambord. So it's like a raspberry creamsicle. It is so good. I recommend five of these before a long drive. No, just kidding, of course. You have to say that now. You can't, it, you know... You can't even make a joke or anything without just kidding. That is a joke, people, because we've reached peak stupid. People people just don't know when you're making something up. But, um, oh, so tasty. And I show how to do that in a recent Instagram and Facebook post. Anyway, back to the gray man. This is huge territory for Hollywood. When you've got companies like Netflix ponying up $200 million, dollars and what they're trying to do is compete with apple and amazon and everyone and create a whole new franchise in fact joe russo told originally deadline hollywood the idea is to create a franchise and build a whole new universe they've all committed to the first movie that's got to be great to get us to the second movie and the gray man follows ex-cia operative turned killer for hire and he's played by ryan gosling and he's pursued by an old colleague, now a nemesis, nemesis, Lloyd Hansen, played by Chris Evans. Now, as reported, the Russos believe that this is a born-like story, as in born identity, which has the potential to inspire several follow-ups with Gosling's character at the center. I love Ryan Gosling. I'm a big fan. We were very close to having him on a project that died years ago, and I, I think he can do anything, absolutely anything. I need to add him to the list of Canadians that I like, that are, are valuable. Uh, and remember, you heard this here first. Now, while you're waiting for that film to go into development, you might be getting some mail. You might be getting something in the post. And you know that I reported here early on a huge concern, both in Australia and in the U.S., on voter registration, because um, evil evil, diabolical powers want to have male voter registration and male voting, which is just absolutely rife, rife with problems and uh, rorts and stuff like that. Well, quite interestingly, just about a week ago, as reported by Greg Norman, not Greg Norman, the golfer, what a great name, Greg Norman at Fox News, a cat got a voter registration application in the mail which would be okay because you know I love cats and cats are smarter than 99% of people in the world. Not smarter than my listeners. I have, as you know, you just have to look in the mirror. My listeners are the smartest, best looking people. 
in the world. That's my, that's, you know, the profile of the people that listen to the show. You're beautiful and you're very intelligent. But cats come right after all of us. Now, the only problem with this voter registration application is that the cat had died 12 years ago. And it was an Atlanta family that received, received the voter registration form for their cat, Cody Timms, the late Cody Timms. As Carol Timms, the late feline's owner, told Fox 5 Atlanta, there's a huge push if they're trying to register cats. I'm not sure who else they're trying to register. I'm not, trying to, I'm not sure if they're trying to register dogs, mice, or snakes. The Timms said they found the form addressed to the cat and their mailbox on Wednesday. And Carol described the late Cody as a great cat, indoor and outdoor, who, quote, loved his family, loved his neighborhood, and lived to the age of 18. But let's look at it this way. Third-party groups all over the country are targeting to help register qualified individuals, quote, unquote. These groups make you wonder who these out-of-town activists really are and what they're doing. These people are dedicated to getting anything and anyone on voter registration so they can roar it. And what's even worse than that, even worse than that, when Fox News asked Cody's owner how he would have voted, she said Cody was definitely a Democrat. That stupid cat. (laughs) Actually, Cody, rest in peace. I don't mind that you were a Democrat because all cats go to heaven. And we play the man, not the ball. We play the cat, not the fur ball. Now, totally coming out of left field, I was working on the podcast earlier today. I was trying to think every week on how to make it a bit better. What is it that I can do to improve it? What is it that is something special that makes it different from, well, there's only one of me, so that makes it quite different. But what is it that can really make it so that people just, oh, they can't wait till Friday or Thursday in the U.S., Thursday, late night Europe. And I was reading up about the Shokunin Kishitsu. Shokunin Kishitsu is Japanese for, it translates roughly as the craftsman's spirit. The craftsman's spirit about always trying to improve and improve and improve and improve. In fact, many Japanese car makers on their Japanese lines at the end of a shift, the management goes literally person by person and asks them what could they do to improve at their shift every day. It's the obsession with perfection. And I've been working on it, working on it, And then suddenly, serendipitously, I said it right this time, uh, in my inbox was um, an availability of the stream, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if any of you know Jiro Dreams of Sushi. That's spelled J-I-R-O. But it's a film that came out around 2011. And it's a Japanese language American documentary. And it was directed by David Gelb. And the film follows Jiro Ono, who's an 85-year-old sushi master, and he owns Sukiyabashi Jiro, which is a Michelin three-star restaurant. It's a 10-seat sushi-only restaurant, and it's in a Tokyo subway station. Well, I decided to click on it. I read about it several times. I clicked on it, 
and watched it through. It's amazing. You think about something, you program something, you build the brain cells to suck in everything that relates to that. I mean, on a very simple level, if you're thinking of buying a blue Volvo, God forbid, it suddenly it seems like everything that you get on the internet or see in the street is a blue Volvo because your brain becomes attuned to it. It's like laser focus. Um, it's really an NLP exercise to eliminate everything else, put on the blinkers and try and find out as much information about that as possible. That's not unlike the dinner party exercise where you focus on seven other people in the room. But more importantly, as I was thinking a lot about Shokunin Kishitsu, the craftsman spirit, this film embodies the craftsman spirit. The film also profiles Jiro's two sons. Now, he gives a tasting menu. If, if you're not a sushi fan, don't worry. Do not worry. This film is still for you. Because if you're a perfectionist, if you love craftsmanship, if you like doing something better, if you like just washing the dishes better, ironing shirts better, building a car better, raising your children better, anything that's improving over and over and over again, this film is definitely for you. So anyway, as of a couple of years ago, his tasting menu of roughly 20 courses was a minimum of $270 US. And I started thinking, do I really want to watch all? I do love sushi, but I got so sucked into it and realized that everything that I'm trying to do on the podcast is what Jir was trying to do at his sushi bar. And in fact, Looking it up, Roger Ebert, the late Roger Ebert, had called it a portrait of tunnel vision and concluded while watching it, I found myself drawn into the mystery of this man. Are there any unrealized wishes in his life? He's 85 years old. Secret diversions, regrets. If you find an occupation you love and spend your entire life working at it, is that enough? Standing behind his counter, Jiro notices things. Some customers are left-handed some right-handed, that helps determine where they're seated at his counter and how he delivers their sushi. And as he serves a perfect piece of sushi, he observes it being eaten. He knows the history of that piece of seafood. He knows his staff has recently started massaging an octopus for 45 minutes and not half an hour, for example. Does he search a customer's eyes for a signal that this minute change has been an improvement? Half an hour of massage was good enough to win three Michelin stars. You realize the tragedy of Jiro Ono's life is that there are not and will never be four stars. It is such an amazing film. It absolutely, if you go to look in the mirror after you watch this film, you look in your own eyes and you will literally, and I know you're not supposed to use the term literally, literally, overused so many times, literally. But you look in the mirror and you'll give yourself such a self-examination of your life. It It is suddenly like there's a spreadsheet of everything that you do extremely well and everything you do shithouse that you want to improve. That's what that film brings out in humanity. What perfection you can achieve, what you can't, and what you can do better. And the journey of just doing the very best you can, it's something. And it's such a powerful film, too, because 
you know, the story of his son who's 50 years old but still working for his dad at the restaurant. This, this kid, he's 50, he's a kid, is living in his dad's shadow while his father is still in a relentless pursuit of perfection. It's so beautiful. And it has a Philip Glass soundtrack. And Philip Glass has some of the most incandescent soundtracks of any films ever. Just amazing. I can't recommend it enough. It might be a little hard to find, but I guarantee you'll love it. And I think it's something that you can watch with the entire family too, because it's very inspirational for the kids. But it's also very technical and very humanistic. It's quite amazing. I think it's available on Netflix in the U.S. Um, and has been for some time. So I know that was a little bit of a departure, but uh, it gave me a list of dozens and dozens of things that I want to do to make this podcast better. And I'm starting this coming week, it will be available on YouTube channel, Bobby Galinsky YouTube channel. Oh my God, you're going to have to look at me. Not just yet, although there are plenty of videos up there of me if you do wish to. Um, I know some of you live to, uh, some some of you live to unsee the ones you've seen, but uh, it will be up audio only. Um, thanks to the 178 hours I tried to do conversions of these on iMovie and ended up picking up the computer and wanting to throw it out of a 50-story building and landed on Steve Jobs' grave because I could not make it happen. But um, thanks to my son, Steve, technical wizard, these are being converted. And those of you that have converted audio MP3 files to YouTube and stuff before go, how, how hard is it? What a tard. Well, there's a couple things that um, I do really well technically, technologically. And there's others that, as an angry, short-tempered, 67-year-old, white, Jewish, unfulfilled man, who is like Jiro trying to get the four stars for sushi, was hoping that that Academy Award would come out of the sky there somewhere. That won't be happening, most likely. Um, that's just something that uh, I had to defer to my son. Because he's a wizard and very generous. Hey, Steve. Hope you're well out there in the San Francisco Bay Area. I would give you more information about my son and like, you know, the street where he lives and uh, where he works and things like that. But uh, he's he's scared. He's scared. I uh, said, Steve, do you want me to shout you out in your in your business on the podcast? And he goes, oh, no, 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 better not, better not. But good luck with that. Click, boop. No, not quite that bad. But he does get worried. Gets worried that I'll say something and, you know, he'll get called in the work and go, are you related to Bobby... Kalinsky in Australia. Yeah, I, there's something I'd like you to listen to. Um, we need to address. No, 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 no. Not that bad. Not that bad. We all have someone like that in the family. And that guy is me. That guy is me. I think it's time for another Chambord here, I'm thinking. Really think of another Chambord. Now, I'm also thinking of some music. I'm looking over here. Those of you that saw the beautiful shot of my amazing office, man cave, den, that I got wallpapered last week by Walter K. Wallpaper to the stars. The wallpaper of the block TV show that will be 
Premier Ainsoon on Channel 9 here in Australia. Uh, now that MasterChef has finished over on Channel 10, I don't know how many of you watch MasterChef. As I said in the very first podcast, most Australian TV is rubbish at best. But man, do we do reality well, and man, do we do MasterChef well. The English, which normally do great things, they don't touch us on MasterChef. They got about 90 cameras, beautiful sets. It's just astonishing. And the new chef stroke judges this year were great. But they had the finals this past week. It was very, very exciting. The semifinal was very exciting, except in a little bit of reverse misogynism, they got rid of the guy and they left the two chicks in the final. And the problem is, in the semifinal, and if you're not watching this, this won't make any difference to you. But if you are watching it, maybe you feel the same way. Amelia, who was the eventual winner, and Laura, who I liked a whole lot and who I picked her and Amelia to be actually one of the winners early on. And Reynolds, who really started to think was, you know, one of the most interesting. Anyway, Laura had problems carving up this apple for this impossible dessert created by Martin Benz, who is like chef extraordinaire. Uh, a dessert that you would have at a restaurant, but you wouldn't attempt at home. They even put the recipe online. That's like, oh, here's a recipe for um, a 500 megaton neutron bomb. And why don't you just, you know, give it a try while you're in lockdown using things you only have in your pantry. Fuck me. Nobody's going to make this thing. But um, Laura had a problem with her apple early on. And Amelia, in the middle of a competition, a competition contest, not a participation trophy, went over and helped her. She would have been stumped. She wouldn't have gotten past that. She wouldn't have been able to complete her dish and it would have been Amelia and Reynolds. But in a rare example of the sisterhood helping each other, Amelia helped Laura and Laura eliminated Reynolds. And so it was the two girls. I think it's wrong. It is a competition. I think you want to be nice. But it's like, oh, you're about to win the 500 meters in the Olympics, and you see someone three miles back, and you go back to give them a hand. Give me a break. Give me a break. But anyway, how I got onto this is I was talking about my amazing office and the wallpaper, and you've seen the photos. And I'm going to run at the guitars. I'm thinking of playing a bit of guitar here as soon as I finish the podcast. I might even play part of a song on one of the future podcasts or something like that just for a departure. And speaking of music, by the way, when I talked about buying that first RCA stereo back when Like a Rolling Stone came out, it occurred to me, and I had to look it up to see what day, RCA doesn't even exist anymore. His master's voice doesn't even exist anymore. It started in 1919, the same year my dad was born, and my dad worked for them during the Second World War, developing radar and also the color television. But um, it went bankrupt, defunct in 1986. Can't believe it. No RCA. No more Oldsmobile. All the things that are gone. Anyway, but looking at the guitars here, it just reminded me, totally out of the blue, a little bit of a time travel, back in Boulder, Colorado. Again, no, it's not another fire story. But when I first left the dorm and got my own apartment at a place called Madison Park Apartments on Colorado Avenue, um, had my own apartment. I was feeling pretty cool. 
and um, didn't have to have all the rules of the dorms, hated the rules. And so I could play my guitars pretty much as loud as I liked until one day in 1974, I'd say it was, somebody moved in next door who was a total dick. Was always complaining about everything with everybody. And I even tried to be the good neighbor. I said, listen, I play guitar and drums, but I don't have drums here, but I do have guitars. And um, I was going to say, I can see you're a dick, so I want to uh, start off on the right foot. But I said, listen, what's the best time for me to play the guitar a little bit loud so it's not going to be disturbing you so much? And he was a little taken aback by this. He was, I think, impressed and said, well, the best time would be probably about late afternoons or early evenings, but not too late in the evening. Well, that disturbed me a little bit because, you know, I like to get pretty lit up late at night and play. But I thought, all right. Anyway, lo and behold, lo and behold, next day, 4.30 p.m., I'm playing. He did say late afternoon to early evening, 4.30 p.m., thank you. And, uh, banging on my door. I hear this. Well, I didn't know it was banging on my door. I thought it was my amp. I had this amazing, you know, it was coming Marshall amp and an original flying V Gibson flying V. Fuck. I miss that guitar. And it was just at a billion decibels. People thought like, you know, DC eights were coming through the building. And I thought, so go fuck what's wrong with my amp. I stopped playing. And then I realized it's pounding, it's pounding at my door. Go to my door. He's standing outside there. He goes, do you think you could hold it down a little bit? I go, what do you mean? He goes, do you think you could hold it down a little bit? And I said, well, you did say play in the late afternoon. He said, well, not that loud. So he stormed off, heard his door slam, slammed loud, like that rude slam, like, fuck you, fuck you. I thought, all right. Fine, I'll give him a break. I'll go to the store. I'll go shopping, go grocery shopping. Wasn't in the clothes shopping so much. And as a student, I didn't have the budget. So I went over to the amp and I turned it up as loud as it would go. And I put the flying V right next to the amp and plugged all the pedals in. The reverb pedal, the fuzz box, the phase shifter, the analog delay bark demodulator, which only myself as Donner Vixen owned, and the wah-wah pedal. The feedback was so amazing that I, I believe that it might have killed any rodents within 270 miles. But as all of that wailed in a cacophony of chaos, unbeknownst to man before, I left it going. I walked out, locked the front door, and went shopping for three hours. As I pulled back into the garage at about 7.30 p.m., way down below, I could still hear the... Which got louder and louder and louder as I approached my apartment and came inside and shut it off. I never had a complaint from him again. Regrettably, the pattern of loud music 
continued on as I went to way, way, way too many loud concerts or played music way, way, way too loud, such that now my uh, my hearing is um, is whacked. I can't say I'm going deaf, but um, there's definitely been some serious hearing loss going on that we have to learn firsthand. And so now my hearing is uh, relatively stuffed. Uh, about every third thing that someone says to me, I usually go, what? Pardon? Excuse me? Sorry? What would you say? Could you say that again? Oh, I didn't say anything. Oh, I thought you said something. No, you're hearing things. Your ears are ringing. Oh, my God. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Well, you may think I'm deaf, but I heard that. What is your podcaster wearing? Well, what was I just wearing on our morning walk? Was an amazing kind of sky dusty blue, gray blue. I'm going to call it Gant blue because Gant does this color a lot, even though this isn't Gant. Uh, and it's the color blue that um, the M series BMW uses in their blue car, but it's a um, ski jacket from Descent Limited. Uh, and Descent, also known as Kabushika Geisha Desanto. Is a Japanese sports clothing and accessories company first formed in 1935 when Takio Ishimoto started the company in Osaka as Ishimoto Shoten. You may have seen it on many ski teams at the Olympics because the company logo depicts three basic skiing techniques, traverse, shush, and side slip. And Desant owns a portfolio of 16 in-house purchased and licensed brands. The, the company is world-renowned. They sponsored the U.S. speed skating team in the 70s and 80s, including Eric Haydn, who won five gold medals at the 1980 Olympics and also supplies the Canadian ski, speed skating team. But most notably, the demo pants, ski pants style was launched in 1974 by the company called the Magic Suit, which had a wearable heating system called the Thermo Mobile Jacket which was later introduced in 1998. And in 2002, Desant collaborated with Academy Award-winning art director and costume designer Aiko Ishioka in creating the Vortex suits and uniforms used by the Japanese, Swiss, Spanish, and Canadian teams competing in the 2002 Winter Olympics. Interestingly, Aiko Ishioka the art director, was the one that Francis Coppola chose to do all the costume designers on his amazing rendering of Dracula, one of the most underrated films of all time. So it was quite cold this morning, and uh thought I'd flash out with that, with that uh, descent ski parka just a bit. Now, topping it off, I needed to know exactly what time it is. And since last week we kind of started this little journey down watch road, I was wearing today, brought out a little bit of flash, wanted to feel a little bit good during lockdown, like to dress up. So I brought out the black stainless and platinum IWC Schaffhausen, which is the Portugieser model. Now, those of you that know IWC, we're not being show off here, we're just being technical. It's a luxury Swiss watch and it's located in Schaffhausen. Switzerland, founded by American watchmaker Florentine Ariosto Jones in 1868. 
and they, they, IWC, are best known for producing high-quality pilot and aviation watches and using titanium. It's also the only major Swiss watch manufacturer located in eastern Switzerland, as the majority of the well-known Swiss watch manufacturers are located in western Switzerland. And in fact, the lingua franca, the language of IWC, is German. Now, they were completely destroyed in World War II when the U.S., accidentally bombed the shit out of their factory, mistaking it for a German war plant. Big mistake, but uh, they fixed that all up, and uh, now they're one of the leading watches of the world again. And uh, this one is black, uh, with the black lizard strap, and the all-black face with the chronometer on it, and stainless and titanium, which will be in the show notes. It's my favorite watch. It's my go-to watch, either if I want to dress up and um, go to a party, which which you can't do now because the world is locked down, or just um, kind of strolling around from, you know, bedroom to boardroom, from streets to beats, it handles just about everything. And the watch is indestructible and extremely accurate. They also make a variety of uh, turbulons and other high-end watches, of which none of those have found their way into my collection as yet. Maybe one day. Maybe when this podcast is monetized like Joe Rogan and I get uh, $100 million per year. And uh, maybe when pigs fly and I get my Academy Award. That's my long-standing pipe dream out there with about a half a dozen projects out there with various people, none of which may ever see the light of day. But you never know. One just might. And late in life, might get recognized and stroll up with the aid of a cane up to the uh, stage and get my Academy Award for something that I wrote 20 years ago that took that long to make. And uh, I've had the speech prepared. I've had the speech prepared since 1980, really, since I really got into the industry. And uh, every year I rewrite it a bit and, you know, write some people out with the thank you and, and write some people in. But fundamentally, it's uh, fundamentally it's the same. So uh, it's ready. And as Billy Wilder said, be ready yesterday. But I'm not losing sleep over it. Now, what did I drink last night? Chambord. Chambord has been opened at night and in the day today. In kind of a 24-hour circuitous Chambord drinking festival. And don't forget to use that spoon, once again, when you're pouring the heavy cream on it. And by the way, a bit of a shout out, I use Baramba organic products from Queensland. Their dairy products are the best. There's no sponsorship here. I just discovered them also at the Leaf Store in Elwood, um, run by Neon Leon and company. And uh, the creamiest cream the organic milk, the, the whole milk has still got the little bit of cream on the top in the glass bottles, just like the old days when, uh, you know, Wells Dairy used to deliver um, when I was a kid growing up in, in Sioux City. And we'd put the milk box out with a little note. And in the morning, the uh, all the dairy products would, would be there. The good old days, the very good old days. Well, as we... Uh, as we come towards the end, just a quick shout out to some people. The wonderful Nancy Levine with the Central High School Reunion, who um, keeps posting amazing pictures and things like that. Um, I saw the 
inimitable Mike Moreland twiddling around on Facebook the other day. And uh, Mike, hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing well. And Rusty Clark, a huge anniversary with Thorpe Jewelers, which uh, was a mainstay in Sioux City. So uh, happy anniversary, Rusty. And a shout out to Roger Stone, who was pardoned by the president, and deservedly so. People say, oh, we shouldn't be pardoning people. Well, his predecessor pardoned like about 1,700 people. So we're not going to get into that today. Um, and shout out to old friend Tom Wideline in Santa Monica and Luke Elliott, guitar player extraordinaire that uh, is out in South Yera at Guitar World. Keisha Jackson, who always has amazing posts on Facebook and is a loyal follower of the podcast. The great people down at Oski in uh, the CBD of Melbourne, where the Desant Parka came from. Oski's been there forever. Beautiful service, top people. And uh, they run all over for you. They uh, old school service. Next week, we're going to talk quite a bit about Hong Kong and the situation there. Um, the United Kingdom and here in Australia being two of the top countries that uh, have negated the um, treaty with mainland China that would um, allow reciprocal prisoner deportation so that we can bring in Hong Kong refugees. And everyone there is a refugee right now is fucking China who gave us Wuhan flu and killed 45 million of their own people in the great step forward and doesn't give a shit about anything and wants to take over the world. Yes, they do. Uh, no, they won't. Uh, um, is trying to destroy the freed-loving people of Hong Kong. And uh, the UK and Australia is going to be taking just about everybody. Don't know what's going to happen to Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Don't know what's happened to my speech therapy seminar. Hong Kong. Um, don't know what's going to happen to Hong Kong after all of this. But... Um, Big changes, big changes. And of course, the media, they don't care. Um, they're more interested in, you know, you know, the, you know, Portland, which is an absolute war zone in, C in Seattle and Chicago and Baltimore, where no one who walks upright would ever even visit now, um, worrying that the president's sending troops in there to restore order while the country absolutely goes down the toilet um, because of radical Antifa Marxist-loving, BLM, double-digit, moronic, psychopathic, you know, demonstrations. But that's all for next week. That's all for next week because I'm staying nice. And it's always nice. It's nice to be important. I feel important today in my office with my beautiful wallpaper. But as you've noticed the past two weeks, practice what you preach. It's more important to be nice Have a great week. Listen, subscribe, and thank you. Bye-bye.